Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. We are meeting virtually. Uh, Glenn is there in Connecticut, and so is Tom. I'm in the Pacific Northwest in the state of Washington. Glenn, though, won't be there in Connecticut much longer. You're transitioning to Indiana, right? That's right. By the time this is broadcast, I will have moved. Wow, amazing, amazing. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast and tuning in. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm, a, as I noted, a pastor here in the Pacific Northwest. I serve a church outside of Portland. I've written a number of things. I've got a new book coming out on Tom Bombadil. It uh, should be out real soon. Uh, I've had a lot of people expressing interest in it, and I'm really glad that we finally are at a place where they can actually buy it, <laughs> or pretty close anyway. <laughs> and uh, that's enough about me. So, Tom, talk talk to us a little bit about some stuff that you're working on and about yourself. Um, uh, Tom Price, uh, soon to be the only one in Connecticut holding up this end of things. Um, <laughs> I, I, to admit, I would probably like to be departing, but uh, that now is not the time. <laughs> but I do foresee a future with, without us <laughs> remaining in Connecticut. But for now, that's, that's where we are. But Tom Price, I teach systematic theology. Christian ethics, uh, philosophy, philosophy of religion, and other things, and got a book coming out, well, not coming out, uh, in in process of being written um, on uh, Christian theology, ethics, and technology. Yeah, good stuff. Now, Glenn, tell us about yourself, and feel free to take us right into the subject of the day. Okay, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor at Central Connecticut State University. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries under Ken Boa. And I also have a book coming out pretty soon, I hope. Uh, I got the comments back from the editor, and I am going to be working on those in my copious spare time uh, over the next um, couple of weeks, I, I expect. Um that one is, uh, at least the working title is Christians Who Changed Their World. It's a series of biographical sketches of people that either you never heard of or didn't realize that they were Christians mm-hmm. and the things that they accomplished because of their Christian faith as they were applying it. And it ranges from people like, say, um, famous missionary William Carey to Sorkaktani Becky, who was the daughter-in-law of Genghis Khan. So we cover a lot of different kinds of people. <laughs> That's a lot of ground. <laughs> yep, yep. So anyway, um, that uh, will be coming out. Well, I don't know when because I don't know when I'm going to get through the uh, editor's comments, but that'll be coming out on Canon Press at some point in the future. That's great. Um, now, today, what I would like to do is uh, think, talk about a topic that I covered. Well, I will from where I'm sitting now, it is I will be covering, or when this is broadcast, I did cover, at a men's retreat that I did with Ken Boa, or will do with Ken Boa. This sort of time <laughs> thing is a little odd here. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I, I was speaking on the topic of pilgrimage, and I thought that might be kind of an interesting thing to explore because there are a couple of things that we would talk about here that just didn't really fit with the theme of the retreat. So um, pilgrimage is, you know, just simply defined. It's a trip taken for religious purposes. And what you find as you're looking at this historically, and I did a historical run through a bunch of different things, 
is that in the early the earliest centuries of the church in the apostolic fathers and in the period immediately afterward you see absolutely no particular interest in pilgrimage uh, the idea that they have is uh, that life is a pilgrimage you know that you need to see your life as pilgrimage that we are strangers and exiles on earth we are sojourners here um, in the epistle to Diognetus, um, an early second century writing, um, the author, the anonymous author, says that you know Christians take on all the duties and responsibilities of citizens, but they suffer all the hardships of foreigners because every their native country is a foreign land, and every foreign land is a native country to them because they are looking, you know, as it would say in Hebrews, they're looking ahead to a better country. Okay. So this is the earliest attitude that you get. You do start running into some people who are doing some travels um, to Jerusalem, particularly uh, in the second century. But when they're doing that, they're doing it because they want to increase their understanding of the Bible. They, you know, they want to they want to see the places and understand how they fit together. And from what I understand, I've never been to the Holy Land, but from what I understand, people who go there come back saying, yeah, this has made a big difference in the way I understand scripture. Okay. So you get some of that. They also want to plug in with the Christian community there or what's left of it. So the early the earliest church up until really about the fourth century isn't overly interested in pilgrimage as a specifically uh, religious activity beyond just simply a way of enhancing knowledge of, of the scriptures. That begins to change with Constantine. Constantine, when he converts, and I do believe he did convert to Christianity, contrary to a lot of people out there, uh, he sent his mother Helena to the Holy Land to try to track down evidence that Christianity is true. So she found relics. You know, she identified things that, that, you know, the true cross, or at least what she was told was the true cross, things like that. And along with that, she also identified a number of key sites, and Constantine built churches there. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the original one, was built by Constantine. Um, you get churches in Bethlehem. You get a church on the Mount of Olives, things like that. And so at this point then, very, very soon afterwards, in the 300s, you begin getting a bishop in Jerusalem uh, saying things like, other people see and hear. Uh, we, we, uh, other people hear, we see and touch. You know, the idea begins emerging that there's a kind of sacred geography for Christians, that these are genuine holy places because they were made holy by the fact that Jesus was here. Okay. So, you begin, by in the fourth century, you begin getting this idea of sacred geography. Then along with that, you see paralleling the development of the cult of the saints. Now, originally in the New Testament, the word saint, of course, just meant a believer. Glenn, I had one quick thing yeah, oh. I, I didn't want to lose before you get going. And uh, just to keep in mind that at the same time, you're dealing with the roughly the same time, solidified teaching on the, the two natures of Christ and the significance of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And that you also have here drawn out inferences from Christ, God truly uni uniting um, with humanity, that the human medium, the creaturely now, the tangible does have 
in relation to Christ's significance. So I just I didn't want to lose that before you you head you head on. And, yeah, and that's a really good connection to the cult of the saints. Because what you get initially is uh, the idea of a saint as any believer. Then already in the second century, the term is, becomes reserved for martyrs. The martyrs are the saints. Then that gets expanded to bishops and ascetics and um, apologists, things like that. So you begin getting this idea that there are some people within the Christian community that are really special, that are unusually holy. And so we're going to designate those as holy ones, as saints. Yeah, let, let me think about this a little bit with you, Glenn, because this tendency sure. to kind of elevate certain people, or maybe a better way to put it is to recognize the fact that they are above us. We see that even in our own lives. Like, you know, I can think back to people I knew as a young Christian in the in the little blue-collar church in Western Pennsylvania that I was converted in, who really were uh, exceptionally devoted and uh, loving and interested in me. And I thought of them as having a kind of uh, special character, um, you know, and, and, and to this day, I honor their memories. They're largely gone now, but I honor their memories. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if you were to press me and say, are you trying to tell us that, that God loves some people more than others? I would say, of course not, of course not. But I do think that if I were, you know, you know and, I, and I did do this, if, if there was a, something I was dealing with in my life and I wanted someone to pray for me, there were certain people that I would go to uh, instead of other people, recognizing that these are people who have a kind of, you know, sort of, there's a, there's a kind of reality to their, to their faith and their practice that is a kind of a step up, you know, it's not, and it's not me deifying them. It's just, it's a, it's a reality. Right. Yeah, and, uh, and I agree. We've all got our spiritual heroes. Okay. But what ends up happening at this point when these people are designated saints is you get, you get two related phenomena. One of them is the development of saints' days. So the, you know, uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day, you know, or whatever. Those kinds of, those things, what we don't normally realize is that those are typically not the saints' birthday. They're the saints' death day. They're the day that they entered heaven. Okay, that's what, we, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate a saint's day. Happy Typically, death day. We are celebrating <laughs> the day their entrance to heaven. A quick note there, Glenn, too. Quick, quick uh, thing. At this period of time, also, you start to see develop a, something you would almost can start to consider a Christian culture replacing a lot of what was the pagan what role were these saints playing in replacing what used to be pagan figures and, and the like? I mean, there, there is a kind of revision going yeah. on here. Right. Yeah. In a lot of ways, the saints are replacing the old pagan heroes and in some cases, possibly pagan deities, but that connects in with the next step, which is where we're going when it comes to, uh, to pilgrimage that people started going to the saints tombs as a way of, well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the tomb is seen as the intersection of heaven and earth with the saint's body or the saint's relics 
as really the bridge between the two. The idea here is that a saint is someone who we have reason to believe is already in heaven. There's going to be a resurrection of their body, and thus the body is directly connected to the saint in heaven, and therefore we have this sort of linkage going on at the tomb. So people would, well, then along with this, a third development is you get hagiographies. You get these biographies of the saints, which emphasize miracles and things like that associated with them. So people start going on traveling to these tombs in the hopes of getting healing, for example, physical healing or even spiritual healing. Um, you know, if you want a miracle, you go to the saint's tomb because that's the the bridge, the saint's relics there. That's the intersection in the bridge between heaven and earth. You go there, you're more likely to get what you're looking for. Um, people sleep next to the tombs uh, in the hope of getting revelations from God. Uh, people leave wax votive offerings at the tombs. You know, these kinds of things. So this is yet another step in the development of this idea of pilgrimage. This is happening as, you know, fourth, fifth century, this is going on. Now, there are people out there who are going, this is becoming more and more popular. People are writing these emotional accounts of their pilgrimages. They're talking about devotional things connected to pilgrimage. You get these people leaving the votive offerings, all of these kinds of things. And there are theologians out there that are going nuts about this. <laughs> God is omnipresent. He is not more present in one place than another. Jerome says, there's nothing lacking in your faith because you haven't gone to Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, you know, Greg, Gregory of Nyssa says, traveling to, to going on pilgrimage is nowhere commanded in Scripture. And change of location does not really affect your relationship with God. You know, so you're getting these kinds of things. And then you're also getting complaints that it's, it's essentially paganism. You know, you are, you are treating the, the trip to these places in a superstitious way, hoping for your miracle or being in, in a self-centered way, wanting to get something out of it personally. You're leaving wax figures the way you used to leave them at pagan shrines. You know, you're sleeping next to it like it's an oracle. You know, so you're getting all kinds of criticism like this. Then there's the time and expense. There's the danger of the trip. All of these kinds of things are criticisms that are leveled against pilgrimage early on. And yet they're still becoming more and more popular. Mm -hmm. And this becomes actually a staple of spirituality in the period. Mm. Now, I want, I want to pause here. There, there's a lot of more things. There, there's a lot more things we can talk about. Connection to monasticism. Monasteries were considered a kind of interior pilgrimage where you are leaving the world. Like Augustine says, we're, you know, the early church reviewed life as pilgrimage. Augustine talks about it as being a pilgrimage from the earthly city to the heavenly city. You, you're going to leave this world and go, go on, you know, go head toward heaven. Well, that's what monks thought they were doing. They were leaving the world. That was the way they described it in entering the monastery in a kind of interior pilgrimage. Um, we can talk about the Irish Peregrini. We can talk about abuses of pilgrimage in the Middle Ages. We, you know, there's a lot of things we can go to here. But the question that I want to ask is this, and this is one that I, I did not or will not address in the, the weekend retreat. Is it possible for ground to be made holy in some sort of permanent sense? 
In other words, you know, if you go to a place, uh, I, I um, a few years ago, I led a, uh, a tour of uh, Celtic Christianity. And one of the places we went was the island of Iona. Now, I, the Iona, the Iona community and stuff that's going on in Iona right now, I think St. Columba, who founded the monastery in Iona, would probably excommunicate everybody involved in that community. I mean, it, it's, it's really kind of far from orthodox by now. But still, this was a place that for over 1,500 years, people have lived there, devoted their lives to God, and prayed there. Is there a way in which that kind of activity brings a kind of holiness, or as the Celts would put it, create a thin place between earth and heaven. Is it possible actually for ground to be hallowed like that? Well, we have, I'm kind of, I'm curious about your ideas on this. Yeah, we have, you know, episodes in the old Testament in which we have that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we think about say Jacob's ladder or, you know, the burning bush with Moses. Um, there are places that appear to be thin, like you just noted. I, I like that that way of looking at it. That the the veil maybe is in this in this location not as thick as it is in other places. Um, so, from a biblical standpoint, I think you know you've got a basis for saying something like that. But the question is is permanence you know that's the that's the next what follows you know you, that you, right. you raise that question is this something that goes on uh forever or is it just episodic uh if episodic then you know the place where that particular theophany occurred is just like any other place now but if there's some sense in which there's some kind of residue things have been changed or maybe this is just in the course of things you know the in terms of how god has ordered creation and providence you know in history this just is a place where that kind of thing just seems to keep happening you know that's a good question i don't know how, how to answer it there's a there's a part of me that you know is the protestant side of me that says of course not of course not nothing like that could possibly be the case mm -hmm. then there's another yeah. part of me that says you know that the world the world is a weird place <laughs> and there are all sorts of things that happen in it that mm -hmm. i don't really have a full understanding of and maybe there's something to this yeah, I think, um, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. Um, I, I agree. I mean, there, there is that kind of New Testament thing that, you know, you know, there will be a point at which, you know, um, every, everyone will be able to worship in spirit and in truth from anywhere, anyhow. That's access to God in Christ. Um, so nobody at this point is questioning mm -hmm. that. But there, there, you know, there, there are a couple of things that come in. I mean, the the signif the, the theological significance of memory, I think, is a, is an important thing um, of certain events that happen in certain places. I mean, why do we retell the biblical events? Right? Um, there is a certain kind of participation in in those events through through faith. Um, um, to which you know that we are a part of that, and that is a part of us. Um, so we shouldn't shut the door and say that the whole history of the church just has no meaning for us. Um, nothing significant other than just uh, intellectual curiosity or historical filling in of the blanks. I mean, these people were living saints as best as they were able, 
you know, with their limits, flaws, sin, and yet God's purposes for them. Um, they brought the faith to us. And there are moments in which um, God did amazing things through through ordinary people that made make their story extraordinary and visiting a place um, just like visiting a historic place, um, you know, um, somehow reconnects you to the memory. Um, and then, then it reconnects you also to that these, even though they may be dead, they're not dead in Christ. And so they are living. There is a genuine communion with, with them in Christ um, that, that can't be ignored. And then there is the communion of saints here today and that, that a lot that have have been impacted by certain um, Christians in the past and are continuously impacted and may gather or meet or live in those environments are still, can still be, a, I think, a community that connects us to that memory, which connects us to the fact that the Spirit is going to bring bring the church forward. Um, so, I mean, I think there there is a way to say that there may be distinct modes of memory tied to places that can foster a, a deepening spirituality. You know, one of the things that I'd no. like to just introduce here to maybe we, you know, can't address it too, too deeply is, is there seems to me to be kind of two spirits uh, within which we can kind of uh, think as Protestants. So, you know, one of those spirits is a kind of, I guess, uh, iconoclasm, which is almost um, hostile to, to the very concept that something like this could be the case. Um, you know, to that, to that person, I would say, well, is that uh, inclusive of heaven itself? Are we, are we saying that not even heaven could have a special significance uh, as, <laughs> as compared to earth? Uh, if that's the case, then we're just completely flattening things out. But then there's a different kind of, I think, Protestant spirit, which I, I think I'm more sympathetic to myself, which is, okay, we don't want a bunch of shysters um, selling prayer cloths and making a big bunch of money and abusing the, I guess, credulity uh, and the simple faith of little old ladies who've got some savings uh, that they, they want uh, and they they want to make sure that their grandchild is healed, and and so they're 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 easy they're an easy mark for uh, un, un, unscrupulous uh, you know religious entrepreneurs, <laughs> and I think that yeah. when we think about what happened in in the wor- you know in the worst cases in in you know the medieval world, that's what we as Protestants should be able to yeah. with full throated oh, you know open throated you know sort of. Uh, contempt condemn. Yeah. that yeah that's that was bad that was really bad but this other thing this idea that you know god may be do, able to do things that are you know outside of the simple framework of uh, you know our kind of flattening of the world that's a different matter mm-hmm. so i'm i'm kind of con- i'm kind of conflicted mm-hmm. in this area on the one hand i'm i'm protestant on the other hand i'm like well Heaven is different, and where heaven touches, maybe maybe there is a difference made in the world, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, a, a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, there, there I think there's a kind of, of uh, biblical minimalism out there 
that says basically, you know, if I can't find it in the Bible, then it's not there. Okay, well, that's actually not what Sola Scriptura is intended to tell us. Um, you know, so I, I, I especially think of this in connection, frankly, with, with Reformed guys. A lot of them sort of head in that direction. Um, one way to think about this, though, that I think might be helpful is that is, is to reverse it. Are there dark places? You know, are there places that have become, in a sense, almost unholy because of demonic activity, because of uh, worshiping of, of um, uh, you know, false worship because of. Are you, of, are you uh, speaking of Har- Harvard Divinity School? But, but, you know, I, I think it's easier for us in an odd way to, con- and this is probably the effect of living in a fallen world. I think it's easier for us to speak about a place that just sort of creeps us out rather than a place that actually lifts us up. And so the question is, it, well, I, I suppose the first question is, a place like Auschwitz um, or some of these other places where great evil is done, I know people who've been there. Been there. I, I missed the opportunity to go when I was in Poland. Um, the people who've been to places like that Talk about a level of sort of somberness that's there that I don't think is simply a matter of historical memory or awareness of what happened in the past. There is almost an atmosphere there yeah. that, that people feel. I, I have been, I spent a night um, in a hotel that was described as the second most haunted hotel in the world. Okay. <laughs> And I didn't really think much of this until at one point I woke up in the middle of the night and all I could describe is feeling absolutely terrified for no reason at all. <laughs> yeah, th- this is something that's never happened. Yeah, th- this is something I think it's worth uh, yeah, sort of s- sort of s- spending a little time on. I, I, I have experienced evil uh, in the in the, mm-hmm. the way that you're describing, Glenn, I, I've, there have been periods of time in my life. There mm-hmm. have been experiences that, that I've had. There have been situations that I found myself in where the evil was palpable. And I don't care how mm-hmm. reformed you are; you can't explain me out. Of, you, you can't talk me out of that. You know, and I don't care how scientific you are; you can't you can't talk me out of that. I. And, but at the same time, there have been uh, periods or moments where I've had. Uh, a palpable experience of holiness. You know, sometimes when people will say God is in this place or something like that. Now, sometimes we cheapen it. It's, it's sort of like, you know, we, we try to manufacture it with a bunch of sort of, uh, you know, hype yeah. uh, or a bunch of em, em, emotional choruses or something. But we all know that we're being manipulated at moments like that. Um, but there, there are moments where it's real and even the shysters shut up. You know what I'm saying? And it's when it's real, you can say this is real evil, uh, this is real holiness. This is not just, you know, um, a, a matter of sort of, uh, you know, sort of psychological suggestion or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, if we have places where we can sort of sense palpable evil in a place that's persistent, 
Is it possible that we have places that are persistently good that have been made holy? Hmm. I think so, but you know, if you were to ask me to defend my my statement, I would be uh, only able to allude to scriptures that I've already mentioned. You know, I don't have a real strong case to make. Uh, well, I, I think you also have. I mean, what is the point of bringing all things into conformity to Christ if, in some sense, they aren't going to be impacted by that? Right. And is there a difference between something that is in conformity to Christ versus not? If there isn't, then that none of that makes sense. Right. I mean, what, what is the point of bringing all things into conformity to Christ? Um, um, our, our worship, our life, our places, I mean, being impacting with the glory of God in some sense and and being places at which the glory of God becomes manifest. I mean, that that's kind of the point of that. Right. Um, so, so another way of putting it is, can the glory of God become manifest um, in things that we bring into conformity to Christ in ways that it's not so manifest in things that are not brought into conformity to Christ? Um, and, I mean, that, there's, a real, there's a real theological and biblical way of putting it. Um, and, and this, again, is not to move to superstition where you can um, materialize grace, right? Um, where it's not under under the direction and sovereignty of God, but it's tied up with with what God's up to, His mission in the world. Um, and and I think in, in these things have a way if they're if they're aimed for manifesting the glory of God in some way, they're oriented towards that that you know the fulfillment of our p- pilgrim life, which is which is um, God and all things. Um, all, you know, beatitude, then there's a way in which they may, they may manifest that beatitude, a glimpse of it in faith. Yeah, I think yeah. when I think yeah. about like uh, intellectuals, um, I, I tend to categorize them in two groups, uh, one group being far smaller than the other. Uh, the smaller group is the group uh, uh, where the intellectuals have actually encountered uh, the numinous uh, in some way. And they, their intellects have been uh, humbled by that. And now they uh, endeavor to use those intellects in some way to serve the God that they've come into contact with. And then there is just sort of the hubris of intellect. Uh, we see that everywhere. Um, and the yeah. difference isn't necessarily uh, the degree of education that I've known people who some, some of the... Some of the people in the first category have, have are, are far uh, sort of excel the people in the second category that I've known. So it's not as though you kind of educate yourself out of that. In fact, it's not the case at all. Um, if you've encountered something that's real, that's God, that is God, um, you know, you you are forever marked, and uh, no matter how much you think about it, you know you can't you can't master that. That masters you. Yeah. The um, so th- this is actually something that the the Jews struggled with in the Old Testament um, because they recognized that God was omnipresent, and yet somehow He was present uniquely in the temple uh, or in the tent of meeting or in the tabernacle or whatever. What does that mean? How do you understand that? You know, and if you read Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, he sort of reflects on those questions. You know, that 
you know, the, the heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How can this little temple that I built hold you? And yet somehow it does. Yeah. And it's, and so when, when people pray toward this place or when they come to this place or whatever, hear their prayers and answer them because they're coming to you. Yeah. There, it, it comes down, as theologians will put, it comes down to the mode of God's presence. Um, just like the mode, I mean, God, God in a sense, I mean, think of it as all creatures are dependent on God and in some kind of relation with God. But as Christians, we understand those that are in relation to God through Christ as a distinct mode of that relation, right? Um, and and it, that those that those di- differing modes um, matter. Um, but 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 it's interesting you mentioned that because in a sense, um, Scripture talks about really what God is up to with the church is the building of a temple, right? Um, it, this is in Christ being the chief cornerstone. Um, and so, again, it comes back to that which we are building on Christ. Um, can it manifest the mode of God's presence in ways that differ from just the generic omnipresence of God everywhere? Yeah. And then you, you, can also, you, you can also continue with this looking at Scripture and looking at the pilgrimage feasts. We have the Feast of Passover, the Feast of um, uh, the Pe- uh, Pentecost, the, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and then in the fall, the Feast of Booths. Um, each of these is a physical pilgrimage you were to take to the temple in Jerusalem. And from a Christian interpretation of those, each of them provides a picture of aspects of our redemption. So Passover, it's obvious. That's one everybody knows. It's um, it's our deliverance from from slavery, um, our deliverance from um, you know from bondage, our deliverance from death uh, with the Passover lamb. The Feast of um, Tabernacles is also known as uh, the Feast of Booths uh, or uh, uh, in gathering, I believe. But that one is the start of the wheat harvest, uh, which, um, uh, excuse me, Tabernacles is in the fall, that the Feast of Booths were actually at that point right about now. That points to the wilderness wanderings, because they're to build booths, uh, tents, shelters, like they used in the wilderness. So it points to this period of wilderness wanderings where they were waiting to enter the promised land, which is a picture for us of entering the new heavens and new earth. It's also the completion of the harvest, which is used consistently as a metaphor of the New Testament um, for the, the, uh, the, the last judgment, for the time before the judgment, when, when we're all gathered into heaven. Then you get the Feast of Weeks, which I, uh, which I skipped over, which is the beginning of the wheat harvest. So it's the first fruits, um, but it's, it's also connected to Pentecost and the giving of the law in the Old Testament. So we see in there the new covenant in there. So all of these different physical pilgrimage festivals from a Christian perspective point to different parts of the whole process of redemption for us. But they were physical pilgrimages. Yeah, I think you, that you literally journeyed to the spot as part of this process. 
Yeah, I think you know most reform people have would have nothing to uh, object uh, to in what you just described, Glenn. But you know wh- where this is going. Uh, in the new mm-hmm. covenant, all of those signs have been fulfilled, and we no longer need yeah. to do those things. Uh, consequently, uh, pilgrimages, yes, in the past, in the old covenant, in the in the in the new covenant, no need for those things. In fact, um, the only thing we can uh, you know, biblically, uh, bind the conscience with is, um, you know, uh, I guess, uh, the Lord's day, if we understand that as being something then instituted through the, you know, the resurrection, uh, and then nothing else, you know, not even Christmas, you know, e- Sunday, every Sunday sure. is Easter in this view and, and that kind of thing. So now we end up with a world where, because everything has been, um, in other words, because we're affirming the 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 reign of Christ in all things, no place is special, uh, and maybe one day is in seven, but nothing else is. If you get my, my drift, yeah, and that was an argument of many of the theologians in the early church, right? You know, which was why I started with those objections to pilgrimage. This was recognized within the early church. And the practice of pilgrimage was actually opposed by a lot of key church leaders. It still became a standard devotional practice. The question that that the Old Testament pilgrimage feasts raises for me isn't whether or not pilgrimage is necessary. That question, I think, is answered. It isn't. Yeah. Uh, the question is whether there can be some validity in the practice, even though it is not a specifically New Testament thing. And this is where we get into a whole range of other issues, like how we can sing Psalm 150 a cappella. <laughs> but um, that, 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 yeah. that's, that's a, that's a personal a, pet peeve of mine. Yeah, that's a whole show. That's a whole show. <laughs> but but let, let yeah. me let me just kind of uh, kind of dig into this a little bit. So, you know, we do have pilgrimages today. Um, we just don't call them that. So, for example, Oxford, for many evangelicals, is a special place. Why is it special? Because it's the most significant university in the UK? No, it's because that's where Tolkien and Lewis taught. And so we make a <laughs> pilgrimage to Oxford so that we can go to the kilns or we can go to the, the Bodleian and, and we can you know rummage around in Tolkien's relics <laughs> right and we can and we can say yeah, i was there like the, you know i i <laughs> or the eagle and child yeah right and, but right. i think you yeah. know it, yeah again i mean i think that the the, the importance uh, of that distinction um is important so by one these aren't necessary two they're they're not something that makes a person um, better or not, whether they do something like this. But there, there is a question of, um, on, on one hand, is there a devotional enrichment um, that can be had um, by visiting places historically um, to connect us with the memory of those sign- theologically and spiritually significant events? And is there not something of genuine spiritual value there that is distinct from, I mean, I can read a book about Geneva, for example, and what, what happened there. But if I go there and I see the places, there is a kind of enhancement of my, my, you know, my, uh, my visiting these places. And it's not something that says, um, 
you know, that, you know, this is something that is enhanced merely because I got to do it and someone else didn't. So I have more spirituality, um, but it's something different. It connects to, or look at all the, look at the flood of people that go to, to Israel and Jerusalem. I mean, if the New Testament is, is um, true, truly done away with any significance for all that, why is anyone going back to walk where Jesus walked? Um, you know, isn't well, he now available? Well, think, Tom, every, he's, he's available. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, though, Tom, what, what, what most people would say is what uh, Glenn said in the first part of the show, which is it's educational. So now I go to. But are they really being honest? I mean, I, I think that most evangelicals. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, are, are living in two worlds. They, yeah. On the one hand, they'll, they'll, they'll say everything you just said, Tom. But then on the other hand, they'll actually secretly think that having gone to uh, Jerusalem does make them a better person. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that uh, makes me cringe are the people who go and they see the place where Jesus, uh, tradition says Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, and they get baptized again <laughs> in the Jordan at that time. I, I had that in my and last whatever church. Whatever happened to one Lord, one baptism. Yeah, I had that at my last yeah. church. We had a, we had a particular f- uh, family who didn't want to see their children baptized because they had this aspiration of going to the Jordan and being baptized in the in the Jordan River. So they would leave their children unbaptized uh, so that they could have the real deal, you know, being baptized in the Jordan like Jesus was. And just in case people think, yeah, you know, that's exactly right. I've, I've heard of that too. And just in case people think uh, Protestant or even, you know, Calvinists are, are exempt from some of the other extremes. Um, if any of you, I mean, I know Glenn has have been up to the church, the famous church up in Massachusetts that George Whitfield oh, in the revivals yeah, yeah, yeah. was. was right, if, right. if anyone goes in and does the little uh, history tour there, you'll realize that underneath the pulpit, kind of moved around now is George Whitfield with the skull of Whitfield directly under it because of of the belief that that kind of anointing that he had very very Calvinist leaning kind of evangelist um, could affect him and people have stolen parts of the bones and they've ended up recovering them in in um, uh, near Princeton and over I think in the UK or something um, so because of the right thumb, if I remember right, was the UK. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. so uh, there, there is kind, kind of this. Yeah, um, you, yeah. You can, you even have a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a sense that uh, holy sites have been desecrated. Uh, so, like I, the other day, I was talking about uh, you know New England and congregational churches, and I and I noted that both churches that. Jonathan Edwards pastored now have rainbow flags on the front step and people were appalled. They were like, you know, this is, Mm. this is a desecration of Holy ground. I mean, that was where Jonathan Edwards, for goodness sake, preached. You know, yeah, those other congregational churches, I understand, you know, they, 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 they're not as, they're not significant It's this one is, is the one that, you know, we should make sure that kind of thing never happens with. Yeah. Well, and I know I know a lot of uh, people who have uh, done de-, de facto pilgrimages to Northfield to uh, Moody's home. <laughs> That's right. That's right. May the yeah. spirit of so, Moody fall on me. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Anyway, th th this has taken us a, a, a little bit afield, but um, I think I think that the, the the question that interests me the most is sort of the metaphysical question we ask about whether or not ground can actually be hallowed through, as I say, centuries of prayer. For example, does that actually, in in a sense change the relationship between heaven and earth on that spot you know or conversely great evil does it change the relationship between earth and hell um if we can put it that way i don't think we really can but metaphorically at least um now the the other side of this is i just like to uh give a tip of the hat to the irish here because we've talked before about uh irish christianity the Irish Peregrini, which is where the, simply the Latin word for pilgrims, uh, what they considered a pilgrimage was different from all of these other things. You know, you've got later in the Middle Ages, you'll have people who will do pilgrimages basically just to do sightseeing. You've got them uh, doing it for penance, all of these kinds of things. Um, the Irish, in at least some cases, decided that that God was calling them to become pilgrims and frequently they didn't even know where that was, but God was calling at them to leave their homes, never to return to them. And in at least one case that we know of, and there are probably more, they literally got in a boat in Ireland without a sail or oars or rudder to just go wherever God took them. <laughs> they ended up landing in Cornwall. Uh, we find that in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Um, but others are more intentional about this. So you get people like uh, Colin Bannis, who is going to leave Ireland specifically with the goal of going to Europe to re-evangelize it. <laughs> you know, these people who are traveling, who, who give up everything, never expecting to return again to go on the mission that God is sending them. It's not very far different from what you see missionaries in the 19th century do. 19th century missionaries would frequently pack their belongings in a coffin yeah. because yeah. when they arrived, they were never coming back and they would have it ready for their burial when they died. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, you, you actually run into in, in the case of the Irish uses of the word pilgrimage to, def to describe that kind of travel for right. a sacred purpose in this case, mission. Right. <laughs> So that is another way we can expand our understanding of what what it might mean to be a pilgrim. Now, of course, in the Reformation, all of this stuff is thrown out. Yeah. They go back to the early church's arguments against pilgrimage, especially the penitential ones. Uh, they object to the cult of the saints, all of those kinds of things. But the irony, well, maybe it's not an irony, uh, the Puritans especially, however much they rejected physical pilgrimage, we're really big on the idea that um, life is a pilgrimage. Right. And so they're returning to actually the model of the early church, people like Augustine and any number of people who preceded him, that said you need to think about your entire life as a pilgrimage from the earthly city to the heavenly city, or as Bunyan puts it, the celestial city. Yeah, let's think about that for a second, because what that implies is that there must be some truth that's being conveyed, even through the analog. Uh, we can't throw out the analog 
and retain what it's referring to. You know what I'm saying? Because it's the means by which we apprehend the analog. So now I suppose uh, our diehard folks could say, well, we're talking about Old Testament pilgrimage and we're not talking about anything else beside that and how that pre sort of uh, prefigures this spiritual pilgrimage that Bunyan is describing in the Pilgrim's Progress. I'm okay with that. But at least at some point in time, we can say, hey, there really was something to uh, going physically someplace. I mean, we have it in the, you know, in the, the feasts in the Old Testament. So we can't, we can't dismiss uh, the notion then that there really are some places that are special that God has set apart from other places and has in some sense, as you noted earlier, in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of special mode or distinct mode, made himself known in that place. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth noting that if you go to Hebrews, uh, the, the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are viewed as paradigmatic for the Christian. Right. Yeah. You know that now I'm not, I'm not talking about the, again, the physical pilgrimage, but this attitude that this world isn't our home. It isn't our destination that we're on the way to a heavenly city, to a better land, all of those kinds of things should be at the foundation and root of our lives. Yeah. And we should be thinking of our life in terms of being a sojourner, someone who is not in their native country. Right. They, You're going to say in, something? In time? theology, mm-hmm. yeah, in, in, in theology too. I mean, we talk about it as theology for the pilgrim, um, pilgrim theology. Um, and what is meant by this, um, it, I mean, this goes back very early as, as well, uh, and pilgrim theology has to do with the, the theology of wayfarers, right, of, of those on the way, um, the way of Christ. Um, and it is seen as mission and journey aimed towards uh, its, its final eternal reward. And so what, what p- pilgrim theology tends to represent is the theology we do now as pilgrims. We don't have um, pure theology because our, we're having to still wean off our idols and have our, our loves purified. Um, sanctification needs to do do work. And so that life of sanctification under the conditions of previous fallenness and now being restored in Christ is this journey towards the perfection of our natures in Christ and the fulfillment of them. And so theology now is done under those conditions. So theology itself, too, um, even though we have some, we gain ever deeper understandings of truth, um, it is still not the perfect knowledge and complete knowledge that we will one day have when we we um, see him face to face. Yeah, I think one of the things that is a ongoing matter of debate among a range of Christian people has to do with the relationship of pilgrimage to heaven as opposed to pilgrimage to a new heaven and new earth, if you get yeah. my, my drift. Mm-hmm. So kind of the amillennial versus postmillennial debate kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that Bunyan and his understanding of the celestial city is more the first, that there's a kind of amillennial understanding that, um, you know, uh, the passage of time isn't necessarily you know, sort of bound up with the end of history, ironically, uh, but it's more or less 
uh, here we are and we're going someplace and that someplace is the celestial city that exists now. And then you've got uh, the, the other view, the post-millennial view, which is holding out kind of uh, the meaning of history and sort of this long sort of, uh, sort of uh, process in, uh, in which we are, uh, you know, sort of in trek to uh, the New Jerusalem. But the New Jerusalem does come from, from, from above, but it's in some sense this world uh, fulfilled or redeemed or, uh, you know, uh, remade. It's not a complete uh, dismissal of this world. It's a kind of uh, uh, reclamation of this world. And so, you know, that's, that's the future. Um, this kind of uh, is something I, you know, kind of... Uh, is in the background of my mind when I'm thinking about Tolkien. You know, we talk about Tolkien an awful lot, but I'm I'm rereading the 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 trilogy right now, and I'm in the first book. You know, The Fellowship of the Ring, and you get to Lothlorien, and there we have a kind of a you could say a pilgrimage in a sense, but it's a it's a kind of a, a respite on the way. So yeah. when they arrive in Lothlorien, you know, obviously they're they're uh, after Dick Gandalf's uh, fall in Moria. And they're full of grief, but what they enter into is not the future, but the past. They they enter into an unfallen world, a world that, uh, in some uh, powerful way, is preserved, like an island, in the midst of a fallen world. So what you have is an unfallen world in a fallen world. Nothing's tainted. We're told everything is. Uh, beautiful, everything is unfallen. It's as though there was no fall. So they enter into this world, and of course they, they find their rest there, but they cannot remain. And that, that world, uh, eventually, even Lothlorien will pass away. It's, it's, it's the past, it's not the future. So as I'm thinking about this whole matter of a trek, a spiritual trek, one of the things I think about when I think about uh, the Pilgrim's Progress is that it's, it's a trek that's um, an individual's pilgrimage. Whereas when we think about the church as a pilgrim people, it's more uh, in the spirit of the wilderness wanderings coming to the promised land as a people. You see what I'm getting at? And so I, yeah. I do think that post-millennial, the post-millennial framework does more justice to the communal dimension of the trek because we are yeah. passing through history as a people and uh, we're, you know, uh, arriving someday in the future at this, at this place that has been, um, you know, made, made ready for us by God himself. So anyway, uh, these are just some things that I'm riffing on as I'm thinking about this whole thing. Yeah. If you read the, uh, the, the Navigatio, the, the voyage of St. Brendan, one of the, the Irish saints, um, he set off west across the Atlantic looking for the promised land of the saints, it, it says. And he had a whole series of adventures along the way. Um, but he kept coming back to a place called Ilda, which was his Lothlorien. It was a place where he would go to, you know, as he's journeying, he'd come back there for for rest and recovery in a, in a, a, a safe and, uh, and good place until eventually after seven years of, of this, uh, if I remember right, uh, he eventually makes it to the promised land of the saints and then returns. 
interesting thing about the Navigatio, it was one of the most famous legends in the Middle Ages. It's almost certain that Columbus knew about it. <laughs> and although there are all kinds of symbolic things that are going on in it, it is actually possible for Brendan to have made it to North America. Hmm. Um, somebody in the 1970s built a replica of the, the wooden-framed leather hull boat that he would have used and actually <laughs> sailed it across the North Atlantic. <laughs> so I sort of imagine Brendan going across the Atlantic, making his way down to the Caribbean, which he confused with paradise, <laughs> um, and then picking up the Gulf Stream and taking it back to Ireland <laughs> and telling the story, which, of course, then grew. <laughs> but um, um, in, in any event, it's uh, it, it's a... Uh, uh, a fun story and actually quite possibly historically important for convincing Columbus he could make it to Asia. Wow. So <laughs> we began our conversation with pilgrimages and now we're at Columbus. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but this, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not meaning, I'm not meaning to be facetious, but there is a, there is a threat here. There's something that's running through all of this. Yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, in any event, I thought that uh, that this might be something kind of fun to think about and talk about um, yeah. and riff on a bit. But I think, you know, there's there's plenty of other places we can go to, including some of the problems that actually did arise with sure. this practice and, right. you know, all kinds of other things. But I thought it was worth at least considering um, the potential positive side to the whole issue. Um, right. Like I said, we noted the criticism. It was there in the early church. It was there in the Reformation. Right. Um, and we're really dealing with a situation where the early church and then ultimately with Bunyan are looking at life in general, just your normal life in this world as pilgrimage. But I think it's still worth thinking about the the voyage aspect of this, yeah, yeah. Um, whether we take it literally or uh, figuratively as an interior pilgrimage. I think it's it, it's something worth considering anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great stuff, Glenn. Thanks for thanks for you know uh, yeah. introducing the subject today. And even though we probably can't answer the questions in a way that puts everything to rest, um, <laughs> maybe that's a good thing, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your ongoing interest and support of the show. We are going to be doing a tour pretty soon of the Pacific Northwest. We're going to be in the greater Portland area, the 20, or I'm sorry, the 30th and 31st of October. And then we're going to be up in the Seattle area the 2nd and 3rd of November, and then we will be in uh, the Moscow, Idaho area, the 4th and 5th of November. And so we would love to see you if you are in those areas. Uh, we're in the midst of trying to finalize, uh, you know, locations and times and so forth. But as soon as those uh, are, uh, you know, resolved, those questions are resolved, uh, we will be posting a, an itinerary on our website, and we'll be sure to also do that on Facebook, and which is a you know something to think about. If you if you are not a a uh, uh, you know sort of a fan of ours on Facebook, we have a page you know the theology podcast page, but we also have a discussion group known as the Grumblers, and it's always <laughs> fun to see how the Grumblers are grumbling on any given day. Concerning, and the reason why it's called the Grumblers is that a group of pugs is called a grumble. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> we invite you to be a part of those because we will we'll let folks know on those sites and those parts of Facebook what the plan is for the tour. Anyway, anything you guys want to say as we wrap it up tonight or today? Looks like we're I'm all done. set then. Okay, yeah. good. 
Well, again, thanks again for listening to the podcast and we appreciate your support. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.